1: Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm Eljoy Williams, your host your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, and I am so happy that you made it to class this morning. We have a lot to talk about. We're continuing the conversation we started last week about gun violence prevention. And joining us just in a few moments is the Brooklyn District Attorney, Eric Gonzalez. Now, you may remember he joined us some time ago during our Who We Elect series to discuss the elected role of district attorney. And during that conversation, he indicated that he wanted to come back and he wanted to discuss his reproach to reducing gun violence. And of course, we were happy to have him back on the show. And if you watch and read the news, particularly local news, we are bombarded with stories about rising gun violence in cities across the country, particularly coming out of the lockdown of COVID. But during our conversation with the DA, he sheds light on the motives behind those narratives because what was also happening was a lot of protests and raising our voices about changing some of the criminal justice system's policy, i.e. bail reform. So there may be some motives behind that, and we'll get into that discussion a bit later. Now, of course, gun violence has and continue to be a major issue in our community. And as I said last week, public safety requires community. We can't Rely on just one entity, i.e., law enforcement, as the only entity that should be addressing gun violence. We have to participate as members of the community as well, and there are many different ways to do that. And there are many different actors that have to play a part in the prevention of violence and issues in our community overall. So there's a law enforcement role, there's a district attorney role, there's the community organizations, there's clergy. There are all of these different actors that must participate in keeping our community safe. And it requires all of us to play our role. We can't just be passive. We can't just say that it's someone else's responsibility. Being a part of a community means that everybody bears some responsibility. So we're gonna talk with the DA about his role in that work and really focus on prevention. This is gun violence prevention, not just punishment. Like what happens, what policies do we need to put in place to prevent Gun illegal gun trafficking. What policies do we need to put in place to prevent young people from joining institutions like gangs, (laughs) who are perpetuating violence in our community? So the Brooklyn DA Eric Gonzalez will join us right after the break. So stay tuned.
0: all the problems all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world like when the t-shirt school boys and school come together who is the t-shirt i will let you know
1: who is welcome back to sunday civics i, I am delighted to continue our conversation about preventing gun violence in our communities as i said in our previous episode prevention things like gun violence, doing the community safety work overall requires community. There are many different actors and participants in preventing gun violence and preventing crime overall in our communities. And I want to continue this conversation. Last week, we talked with activists and organizers and a foundation that's actually funding gun violence prevention from a public health perspective, and I wanted to bring back another friend of the show, a district attorney, the district attorney for the borough of Brooklyn, borough city, same thing, at least in New York, (laughs) district attorney Eric Gonzalez, who joined us previously to talk about the role of a district attorney overall, and we left that conversation wanting more, wanting more conversation about gun violence prevention. So I thought who better to bring to the front of the show to not only continue that conversation, but to dive deeper into gun violence prevention, particularly given what we are experiencing all across the country, but also here in Brooklyn, we are experiencing what folks are determining as a rise in gun violence coming out of the COVID lockdown. So I'm bringing back to the front of the class, the District Attorney for the Borough of Brooklyn, Eric Gonzalez. Thank you so very much for taking time. I know it's a busy time.
0: Thank you, OJ. Thank you for having me back. And I'm looking forward to this conversation.
1: So last week, we began the conversation very local, talking about organizations, activists, community leaders who are on the ground doing gun violence prevention work, be it violence interruption, preventing retaliation, how they are trying to address things, whether it be for the city budget. We talked specifically in Milwaukee and Atlanta, but I want you to start by sort of setting the stage in terms of where we are, because you know, living here in Brooklyn, reading the news here in the city, there is always this coverage of a rise in, quote, crime and particularly gun violence in our community. But it's not just isolated to us, it's happening in other cities across the country. So I want you to start by setting the stage of what you're seeing.
0: Well, it's such an important question, Eljoy, because you know, there's a concerted effort to roll back criminal justice reform in this city. And we've been fed a constant uh, narrative of, you know, gun violence and all of, you know, every time you turn on the news, there's a, some terrible incident that's taken place in our city, and it's just being covered that way. Um, and, and for sure, in 2020, after, during the pandemic, uh, we saw a surge in gun violence in the city. Brooklyn was not immune from that surge. Uh, but things need to be put in some perspective. And obviously if you're a family member or you're a survivor or a victim of gun violence, uh, you know the stats don't matter. Um, You know the fact is that you've been hurt and you've you've been harmed by gun violence and you know i think many of your audience members know that my family was not immune from gun violence either Uh, but the truth is in brooklyn we came out of 2019 with the safest year in the history of brooklyn the city has almost 3 million people in brooklyn um, and we had the fewest number of shootings the fewest number of homicides On the record of the city. Um, So there was a tremendous surge in 2020, but it comes off record lows uh, this year in 21. Um, And you would not know this listening to the news we're seeing a 25% reduction in homicides in the county and about the same in shootings. Um. so there's some good news, Uh, but there's a real concerted effort to say that criminal justice reform has been the culprit, the cause of this gun violence. And the reality is, as you've said, throughout the country, we saw more gun violence this past year than ever before. Um, And in a lot of those cities, there is no criminal justice reform. Gun violence did not increase in the city of New York or Brooklyn because of bail reform or discovery reform. Um, There were a lot of triggering factors. Obviously, COVID is a tremendous factor. It was not the only factor. Uh, But once the shootings get started, and this is why a public health response is so important, uh, once those shootings start, there's going to be a cycle of retaliation. And because of COVID in particular, we saw our solve rates as a DA. Now, obviously, I work closely with the police department. We saw the solve rates dropped down to, in some cases, single digits. Uh, And that meant that 90% of the shooters were never arrested or prosecuted. And it it required uh, necessarily that people in the community uh, took vengeance and took, uh, took, you know, these shootings and they retaliated. Um, And once we started to solve these shootings, we see that the retaliation is coming down. Um, and we're going to get to a safer place. But I, I think it was so important to set the stage of the reality in in New York City and Brooklyn. While, well, yes, gun violence is up, we're not back to the 80s or the 90s. In fact, in Brooklyn, we're pretty much where we were in 2016. And I say that because in 2016, the mayor of the city you know, was bragging that we were the safest big city in America. So I, I just needed to put some perspective on what the issue is right now.
1: I think that is such an important point to make. I was recently on, I think, PBS and we were talking about somehow the conversation about bail reform came out. And one of the Republican consultants was like, oh, this is, you know, a travesty was happening in our city and it's because of the bail reform. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not going to let you be on TV and continue this narrative, at least while I'm also here, right, to say that because we did this reform, it has resulted And I was like, show me the number, the, the direct correlation, not your made up numbers, but show me the direct correlation where that is happening. And so I really think it's really important because we talk about on the show, just as we're digesting news, we understand that things are sensationalized, things are part of other people's agenda. And to really put into context the numbers in comparison to other years, in comparison to what is going on, and to know that people are feeding this narrative so that they can either pull back reforms or to put further criminalization <laughs> you know, pieces in place and i think it's important to set that stage in
0: in 2016 when i became the acting district attorney of this county before i was elected i started my own bail reform uh program. I started to do many of the things that we're doing now on a statewide level in Brooklyn. And I think it's so important to take note of that because from 2016, when I took office until the end, you know, the start of the pandemic in 2020, gun violence was actually down 38% in the county and homicides were down a full third. And so a progressive prosecutor uh, with a reform policies, it continues to go down. 17, 18, as I said, in 19, it was the safest year ever. Bail reform does not prevent judges or prosecutors from seeking or setting bail on people who are involved in any kind of violence or especially gun violence. So to attribute the rise in shootings on bail reform when uh, bail is able to be set in, in my opinion, appropriately set in gun violence, it's really just you know fear mongering.
1: Yeah, I think that's really an important an important part to say. So I want to talk a little bit more about what a district attorney's office. What role do you play in gun violence prevention? Because for some who are listening to the show, right, they're like, well, district attorney's office. That's you know people get there after the crime has committed. Right And then you're prosecuting an alleged crime, so what role really does the district attorney have in in prevention? so before anybody has a gun in their hand, before there is a victim on the other end, where the district attorney's office needs to take over in in some form of justice, what role does the district attorney's office have on the on the other end of that?
0: Yeah, and I think it's a really old school approach. That prosecutors only get involved after the harm's been caused and then they're looking to prosecute the case. You know, when I. Came into office, I made a, a promise, and I grew up in Brooklyn. I live in Brooklyn. My family, uh, I'm raising my family there, and generations of my family have now been in Brooklyn. Um, I made a promise to try to make things better um, and to get more resources into the community and to say to the people of Brooklyn, I don't want to meet you because I'm prosecuting you or your loved one. And I don't want to meet you because you're a victim of a crime. I want to meet you because we're involved in our community. So much of the work that we do is to strengthen trust in our justice system, um, figuring out how I support young people in particular, um, getting programming. I take monies that this office seizes for cases and reinvested in sporting programs and SAT classes and chess programs, trying to reinvest into the community, trying to provide um, funding sources for some local community based organizations, uh, trying to do things that make a difference. Obviously, we have a reentry program, it's nationally recognized. I was the only DA in the state that paid for a reentry out of their, his own budget or her own budget, uh, making sure that people could, you know, if they came home um, back to Brooklyn from their time upstate that they were supported. So getting involved in prevention is key to a prosecutor. Um, Any prosecutor just wants to prosecute cases is not, is only doing half their job. Uh, And today um, with, you know, the reimagination of how we solve gun violence, which really means a lot of people on the ground doing violence prevention. I spend a lot of my time trying to make sure that I'm speaking to the mayor's office, um, to funders, uh, to make sure that our violence interrupters um, are funded. Uh, you know, I've had partnerships with some of them uh, to make sure that they have money. I'm sending some money uh, to these organizations so they can do their work. Um, That work is completely independent of my office. I think for the ability for them to actually be credible messengers and trusted people in the community, they can't be seen as an arm of the DA's office, so they're not. Um, But I do try very hard to make sure that they have the funding they need to be successful. Um, And again, really making sure that we interrupt cycles of violence before they start. I created a young adult court. Um, that's really all about taking our youngest you know people before they get involved in gun violence um, and getting them services and resources um, and uh, make sure that they get back into school so there's a lot on the ground here um, but a da has not absolute obligation to prevent gun violence now that's on you know the social side on the law enforcement side there's things that i need to do you know, this, this iron pipeline of guns from down south in helping to interrupt that, getting some of these guns off the streets, buybacks and other things that we do that remove, you know, excess guns from our streets. Um, There's a lot to be done in this topic, uh, but, you know, a public health crisis requires a commitment from all stakeholders. And so I've, Waved, you know, a banner saying, please help me. And so I work with the clergy. I'm working with the hospitals. I'm working with everyone. And of course, our um, crisis management system folks, anyone who thinks they can help, um, they have a, a, a ally here in the DA's office.
1: So I want to dig a bit further because you said a lot of things I took a couple of notes on that I want you to expand upon. So first, let's talk about the iron pipeline. One, what is that? And then specifically, what really can be done to interrupt how guns are making its way to places that don't have large gun manufacturing warehouses? It's not like people are there's a warehouse somewhere that people are going to get guns and they're slipping them out the back. Like that's not what's happening. So one explain what the iron pipeline is and two like what concrete steps should we be advocating for, or can we do to actually address this?
0: Yeah. It's such an important question. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people speak about this and and throw their hands up saying there's nothing could be done. You can't, stop the demand for guns. Um, But the truth is uh, there's a lot that can be done with this new presidential administration. We really need our ATF um, to really work with local authorities Uh, so we can have the drug enforcement agencies, the ATF, the FBI, people who in the past have the ability um, to monitor the, the flow of guns provide this information to county DAs. I'll tell you about a case that we did in Brooklyn um, where there was 246 guns that were brought in from down south. We were able to trace who those guns were originally sold to and actually trace what happened and how those guns wound up in Brooklyn. And what we learned is that there's, you know, businesses down south who take advantage of buying a gun for 50 bucks, 75 bucks, that cheap they're buying used guns and they're selling them here in Brooklyn for five and six hundred dollars. Um, so we went down um, to Virginia in that particular case and we arrested a number of people who were part of that illegal operation. The ATF, our federal authorities, can help us by tracking straw purchasers and people who buy regular guns. We we see people are buying ten and twelve guns a week and then claim they all get lost and uh, everyone turns a blind eye to that the federal government has the ability to identify those people and then we're able to then do some enforcement on that and and, you know continue to do some surveillance to make sure that these guns don't move north uh so that's a big thing but the bottom line on this iron pipeline we have states in the south in particular and pennsylvania is also a problem but we have these southern states you know georgia virginia the carolinas where guns can be just purchased with a driver's license. Um, there's no waiting period of they're bought at certain uh, shows um, or up at a pawn shop. And then they just send them up. They just drive them up to New York and they um, have people here who'll sell them and they're killing people. 70% of the guns that we find in Brooklyn at crime scenes originated one of those four or five Southern states. And so it's a real problem. A lot can be done with the will. Um, And as the DA, um, you know, I can hold gun traffickers accountable if I have the cooperation of the ATF. I don't need them to do the work for me, but they need to trace these guns so I know where these guns were purchased from. And then I can do the hard work in tracking out who our suppliers are.
1: So, so do we? is the issue from a federal, just in terms of the, the civic engagement angle here, right? Is it that the ATF is unwilling? Is it slow? Is it laws that are in place that prevent them from intervening and sort of being a willing partner in this work?
0: Yeah, I don't think they have the will to do it. Obviously, uh, the NRA and other um, pro-gun lobbies uh, have historically been against the ATF doing too much and the fact there are laws against them sharing information about gun ownership and who's sending you know buying guns and there's a lot of uh problems in terms of getting the information one of the things is you know they have not gone back and take a look at older guns they're still written on like little cards that have put in file cabinets like like when I was like, you know, ten years old, and learned how to use the Dewey deci- decibel system. It's like, <laughs> like, like literally, they're not they're not trying to digitize this information. They're not trying to make it easier uh, mm-hmm. for prosecutors to hold folks accountable who unknowingly letting their guns be sold often um, to younger gang members here in the city. And these guns are showing up in homicides and shootings on a regular basis. We can do something about it. Um, I also think, you know, there's you know, there's a lot of information um, that can happen. In the past, you know, we've had people who have informed us about who these, you know, these networks are, and we can infiltrate them and break them up. And so, it's just about a—it's just about a will. I should say also that recently, the state legislature in New York passed a law um, that would make it, under certain circumstances, possible for the attorney general's office to sue gun manufacturers who are knowingly letting these d- deadly instruments come into our city um, and not doing anything about it. So, you know, we're going to stay stay tuned. Um, I know it's something that the AG is, you know, paying attention to, and you know, in any ways that we can hold folks accountable. But there is a law uh, that prevents, you know, states from uh, and consumers from suing gun manufacturers. That was put into law to protect them. Um, Most product liability companies, other companies don't share that kind of thing. If you sell a product that's killing people, normally you can be sued and we we, we protected gun manufacturers. That um, is going to get challenged. And I think that's gonna play a big role in making them more responsible for making sure that guns um, are not being illegally sold in states where they're not supposed
1: to be. I, I wanna just poke a little bit more just before we take a quick break. Because, you know, listening to this and listening to your description, not only about suing, but about, you know, old Dewey Decimal System records, I guess, because I have this personal aversion as well of the federal government creating a database of people, right? Like, my immediate response to that is, oh... (laughs) <laughs> you know, like, I don't want a database of people's names in, in, in terms of that. Like, my immediate reaction is to, like, halt there. But at the same time, there has to be some kind of system that we can create where saying, okay, if there are so after a certain uh, amount of time, and you somehow can you are a business, a gun, you know, store, or whatever, and somehow you keep losing losing in air quotes guns or they keep getting stolen and they keep ending up in crime scenes in new york or you know Virginia other places there seems to be a pattern here that needs to be flagged that your business needs to be flagged fined or something right there seems to be a way that we can create you know you being the lawyer not me uh, there seems to be a way that we can create a system that. One is not sort of big brother, right, or a federal government sort of having control. But at the same time, flagging businesses, you know, if you have a certain amount of cases that your guns keep getting stolen or ending up in a crime scene somewhere, there, there's some correlation here. I mean, yeah. even insurance companies do that. If you have a pattern in practice where somehow your place just keeps getting robbed, at a certain point, the insurance company is going to drop you
0: right i mean listen it's a mindset we know that guns that americans in general um, love their gun ownership but we also love owning cars we also love owning a lot of things and you know you still have to file with the state that you own a car and you still have to register your vehicles and um, you know gun ownership is a significant responsibility um, and i think that the atf already has a lot of this information if not all of it uh, but they're unwilling to share it um, to help solve and prevent crimes and and listen let's you know be real about this for a minute um you know we talk about mass killings all the time and that these you know ar you know 15s and all of these assault weapons are being used to kill folks in mass shootings but on day after day, um, we, we see mass shootings in, in our inner our cities. You know, when you add up all the people who were shot in, in Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Manhattan, and in Queens, at the end of the day, it's the equivalent of a mass shooting uh, situation. And uh, if these victims were not Black and Brown victims, I think war would be done. If there was the amount of gun violence that we see in our cities happening in affluent communities and white communities, there would be a, a greater willingness on the federal government to be involved. And there are simple things they can do. I mean, this is not the forum for this, but there are simple things. You know, this technology they can do, they can micro stamp casings so we know who bought that, you know, shell casing. Um, I, I don't think that you really have a, a genuine privacy right to leave uh, shell casings at the scene of a shooting and say, well, no one should know those are my shell casings. And so <laughs> I think we should challenge some of this stuff in court um but gun ownership this is not eric gonzalez saying that there shouldn't be gun ownership or we should limit all gun ownership or we're going to reduce all people who have a lawful right to carry guns it's saying that you should take on responsibilities when you decide that you're gonna have a gun. And if that gun winds up in a Brooklyn crime scene, I have a right to know that it was your gun or your shell casings that left a a family devastated. And I have a right to then do an investigation to say, how did this gun wind up in Brooklyn? And if it turns out that 15 of your guns are in Brooklyn in the last two years, then there's a problem with you. Um, And I I think that, you know, whether it's Democratic or Republican or whatever your political beliefs are, you should support, People being
1: responsible gun owners. We'll be back with more Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the Well, we're talking to the district attorney for the borough of Brooklyn here in New York City about gun violence prevention. I want to go now to talking about once the incident has happened. And, you know, in a lot of the conversations, folks are talking about our communities as if they're monolithic, right? That we, you know, we, we just want it free really and there's no laws or nobody prosecuted crime. And we know that that's not the truth, right? We want to live in safe communities. And if people are causing harm, if they are dealing, robbing, killing people, committing any type of, of violence or crime, we want people held accountable. And so even in the conversation, when we've talked about law enforcement reform, you know, people have boiled down the conversation to, we don't want any uh, policing or law enforcement in our communities. And it's more of a conversation. We didn't say that we said, we just don't want them beating up on people, (laughs) you know, and killing people, which is a difference than saying we don't want any law in our communities at all. So how do we equitably get to justice in situations where a crime has committed where shooting has happened and you have to hold people accountable but also not continuing to create or feed into a criminalization of black and brown communities like there has to be a balance and what in your mind as the chief law enforcement officer right here in brooklyn how are you balancing your reforms that you have obviously engaged in, in your office engage in, and also seeking justice for victims and preventing crime in general?
0: Yeah. So it's such such a a relevant question because our justice system and public safety ultimately merge at the point of fairness. If we want Black and Brown communities to feel that the justice system actually protects them, they have to feel fairness. And so when you have racial disparities um, at such high levels, when ninety something percent of the people being prosecuted for simple possession of marijuana in Brooklyn were black and brown, when you look at um, traffic stops in the county and, and 75% of the people stopped in you know on traffic infractions are black and brown, although we're you know about forty something percent of the drivers. And when you look at things that cause people to think we're not being treated fairly um, in the policing systems and in the court systems, then you don't feel that that system serves you well. It makes it harder for people to um, trust the system. And, And quite frankly, you don't feel the system cares about you. So when you're a victim of a crime, crimes don't get solved. Um, so how much does the, you know, the government care about black and brown lives? And then when you're uh, living your life, you feel like the government is continuously uh, poking you and trying to jam you up. And so for me as DA, um, I have a very, very strong commitment to making sure that this county is safe and really one of the safest big cities in America. Um, a really strong commitment to fairness and justice and letting people know that, you know, these things do matter, that racial um, inequities and disparities in the system need to be addressed and not just simply said, well, that's where, um, you know, that's where crime takes place. So you're going to see m- many more black and brown people. We have to reject things that are just not true. Um, if, we're, if we're only um, treating certain communities a certain way, then we, we don't have a just, A criminal legal system and people will reject it Um, and i think you know the challenge is that's how and that's why often um, people are unwilling to cooperate with the police and the da's office because they have never experienced true fairness from that system Um, and as long as people don't think that system serves them well they'll use other ways of dealing with it. And and so for me, um, I know that, you know, many of the communities that I serve, and I grew up in East New York and Brooklyn, which in in the nineties was one of the tougher neighborhoods in the city, if not the toughest, Um, you know, people do wanna see police officers um, around and and working, but they just wanna make sure they're treated fairly and they don't want their kids thrown up against walls and searched needlessly. um, and, and treated in ways that we know other communities are not. And I'm going to say, it. you know, I was upset during the beginning of COVID um, because I thought that, you know, there was policing systems differently in Brownsville and East New York, and people were being, um, you know, arrested for social distancing and for not wearing masks. And then, you know, you know, in other parts of Brooklyn, I saw um police officers handing out masks. And so it's important that we say that, you know, whatever is good for the goose is good for the gander, but like we we gotta make sure that people are treated fairly and um, saying that you want a system that criminalizes folks a lot less does not mean that you don't want people held accountable. And then the final thing, and I think it's really important to say this as the district attorney, accountability is not the same as consequences of punishment. Accountability um, for a lot of victims and survivors of crime, they want the person to have never do that again to them, to never hurt another person, to never commit this crime again. They want them to um, own what they did and and, uh, make whatever kind of, you know, overtures they can to say, i'm sorry and i'm going to turn my life around but it's not the same Um, all victims and survivors of crime don't want to see another black and brown person thrown in jail and i know that for a fact um, because i I talk to victims every day and a lot of victims say listen it's not going to help throwing this guy in jail for 30 days Um, can you help them can you get them services can you get them on the right track and if you do that da i'm actually going to feel better And safer because I know that this person will be back in my community in 30 days and they'll be at least on the path towards healing and not just angry because they just got out of Rikers Island.
1: I think that's an important part to make because we have and the numbers generate that as well. If you're thinking about New York City in when the mayor, when the police commissioner is talking about the city being safe they measure it by how many arrests, <laughs> how many arrests they've made, how many people are going to prison, how many, you know, th- that is the measure, I guess, not only in New York City, but across the country in terms of being safe. And then about, you know, obviously how many murders, how many, you know, other crimes are happening, and the numbers of those going down. But talking about accountability or justice in a way that's not just someone going to prison or going to jail, it's a little bit harder. And as you mentioned, even victims themselves also understand it, victims in their family. It's like, I don't want to create a revolving door that this happens to someone else, right? Like how do we put a stop to this period? How do we ensure that gangs are not continuing to grow or wreaking havoc in our community? How do we, you know, like those real, that's accountability and justice, not just increasing the population of Rikers, of, you know, prisons upstate and all across the country.
0: Yeah, LJ, uh, a little less than two years ago, um, you know, a neighbor comes to my, you know, my door and says, Hey, I think somebody's breaking into your car. So it was actually during a snowstorm. I actually, you know, you know, jump into my clothes and run outside. And and in fact, there's someone um, walking away from my car and it had just snowed. So I'm following the footprints. And I I come across the guy who has like some belongings that, you know, clearly belong to my wife, right? So police are called, he's apprehended. uh, We caught him. He's caught red-handed. And uh, so the case comes, you know, into the, into my office has happened in Brooklyn. So, you know, it's a conflict I'm the DA. So I say to the defense attorney, Hey, you know, I'll uh, recuse myself. We'll send it to another DA to handle the case. Uh, but just so you know, I'm not looking to send this guy to jail. Uh, you know, when I, when I spoke to him on the scene, you know, it was clear that he was uh, you know, high and some kind of substance. Um, and so I sent him, For drug treatment, and the defense attorney said, "No, we actually don't need you to recuse yourself. You know, you're offering drug treatment. My client's interested in drug treatment, and people, I I think, um, thought that I was doing that because I was the district attorney. It really that wasn't the case. It was the case that I don't want him to break into my car again or to someone else's car, and so he'll get 30 days in Rikers Island, have come out, and if his addiction isn't dealt with, he'll be back at it, and so." Getting him into treatment is what I wanted as as a person, as a citizen. I didn't, you know, um, and really as a community member. Like I want my community to be better, and and so this guy lives. He actually lives in my neighborhood, and uh, I just, you know, as a person forget about my title, but as a person, just said, let's get this guy back so that he's not breaking into my neighbor's car next time. And so, um, and I I think this is what accountability means, right? Like he was held accountable, didn't spend a day in jail, but he was held accountable. And, you know, I'm not tracking the guy, I don't know what he's doing. But, you know, I heard he graduated from this program, and he had kind of, you know, taken some positive steps in his life. And I actually, as a crime victim in this case, you know, I felt better. I felt like it's less likely that this guy is going to be back at, you know, breaking into cause.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to get to, that's really, if you want to prevent gun violence, if you want to prevent crime, is getting to the root of the issue, right? The root of the issue for most of these, whether it's people joining, young people joining gangs, the root of the issue is they, they need a sense of family they don't have any other places to be. It's because of the situation of their community. It's either you join this gang, you join another one, or you're harassed all right? Like it's getting to the root causes of what results in people committing these acts. Now, going back to something that you said the last time you were on the show, you said something, and I think it's also in a report that your office did about gun violence overall, is if you're talking about the bad actors, you know, in a community, not talking about the folks that you, like you just mentioned, someone who may have a substance abuse problem, a mental health issue, young person, and things of that nature, you can redirect people in most cases. But then there is the percentage that are just bad actors, right? And as you you've said on the show last time it's in your report you know who those are, who they are law enforcement know who they are the district attorney's office knows who they are if it's a head of a gang who's particularly violent you know who they are why is it what what is needed in order to address like those those harder issues like the the the, the gang who's always recruiting the young kids Instead of leaving them alone and letting them have uh, prosperous lives, the the person who is consistently trafficking guns, who consistently shows up in your office or in cases for murder and theft, like what is is there anything we can do about that?
0: Yeah, so it's it it, it's such a insightful thought because what we've seen and uh, in this office, and I think that all my colleague DAs will say is that it's a really small percentage of people who are driving the violence. It's, you know, if you live in a housing development building, it's that one or two families that move in and, you know, are causing a lot of havoc with that one, you know, bad apple that moves onto your block. It's not the entire block. It's not the entire community. And we're going to talk about young people in gangs. A lot of young people are in gangs because they need to be in that gang to live in that neighborhood. But not every gang member is going to pull a trigger. Not every gang member is a particularly violent person. and it is really a small percentage of folks, and we estimate in Brooklyn, it's a less than one percent of our community that's involved in gun violence. We know, as you said, who a lot of those people are. Um, they turn up at the scenes of shootings over and over again. Uh, they may not be the trigger person necessarily, the one who brings the gun. They're the, you know, they're the violent uh, offenders, um, and we can work with those people and we can build cases against them and incapacitate them. And I've done that in Brooklyn. Um, You know, we did a small number of investigations and takedowns into head gang guys. Um, And we brought down the shooting rates right after those cases were done. I mean, we went like just recently, one of the cases, we went like four months without a shooting after we arrested a very small number of people. Uh, So we know that we can do that from the enforcement side. Um, But I also think, and it's important to say this, that I also support doing that um, from the persuasion side, like, you know, having people work with some of these, especially younger folks, to say, listen, you've been involved in the life, you you know, you did what you did, um, but now we want to move you away from that life, and we want to break you away from the gang culture, we want to break you away from the the, the guns, Um, and there are people working on that, the city of New York is about to Uh, bring on it's a a very new program uh, that's been done in other big cities um, to take people who we believe are you know possible shooters or you know investigations think they've shot people in the past but they haven't been arrested and there's no case to be made and say listen we're going to provide you with a tremendous amount of resources to get you to be a leader in a productive way and to put down the gun um and uh, we're gonna put resources into you so you stop the violence. Um, And some people may think that, you know, That's not the right approach because they've done bad things in the past, but it's exactly the right approach to say to folks, uh, we're going to pay attention to you. We're watching you. And if you committed a new crime, we're going to arrest you and prosecute you and send you to prison. But right now, you have an opportunity to stop it and to turn it around. And it's the right approach because, you know, as a person who lost a brother to gun violence, if we can stop that person from hurting another, another family, another individual, then we are going to make a tremendous difference in this county. Um, so. Uh, let's make sure that we don't always just think about the consequence side of what law enforcement can do. There's a lot we can do to put people on the right track and get them mentorship. And when you're successful at pulling out a major gang member and turning their life around, it it definitely allows other people who are much lower in that gang to say, hey, he got out. I can get out and I can turn my life around and I can raise a family and be productive and not wind up dead. Or in, in a lot of cases.
1: Well, thank you so very much, DA, for you know an insightful and thorough conversation about this. As others are thinking about our, our final thoughts here, how they can, one, <laughs> try to work to make sure they have DAs that have similar views to you in their, in their city. We talk about that, but You know, if you can give your thoughts as a district attorney, what would you want from a community, I imagine, and you're open, and I know you are, to having the community be a part of keeping their community safe, right? And what are some... Some things you can tell people that they should do. I know people have the harmful thing; they don't want to be a snitch, but there's there's other things and other ways to be engaged in helping to keep help keep your community safe with the district attorney's office. What are some of those things in your view?
0: Well, listen, I I operate a one of a kind uh, diversion program for young uh, men, mostly men of color. Uh, who have been arrested by the New York City Police Department for a gun. Now in these cases, they have not used a gun to shoot or hurt anyone, but the, they were apprehended with a gun. So they're all potential shooters in the eyes of law enforcement. And we have a diversion program. It, it's very intense. Um, it can last up to two years. On average, it's at least a year and a half long. Um, there's a lot of mentoring, there's a lot of resources put into these young men to Make sure that they never pick up a gun again, and we avoid sending them to prison. And often we avoid you know, getting criminal convictions, so that they don't have these collateral consequences. And I'm always looking for partners, in business, in um, and, and the clergy, um, to work with these young people. You know, so how about I, you know, to, to to the community at large? There's so much you can do to help me get some of these young people and divert them out to justice system. You know, I've said to small business owners and large business owners, if I get a person who's been in trouble and we keep them out of trouble for two years and we monitor them and we get them through schooling and we get them training and we get them anger management and we do all the stuff we can do to prevent them um, from continuing down that road, that bad path, would you help me get them a job? Would you counsel them? Would you allow them to do service at your, inside your, your church or, you know, Um, and, you know, as we do that, as we build that out, um, I think, you know, we can turn lives around. As the DA, if I have to put someone in, in jail, then, you know, that's what I have to do to keep them safe. But so much of this can be done by harnessing the resources of our communities. And even in communities that are less resourced in, in Brownsville and East New York, we have so many talented community based people working in the arts and in and, and music and in the industries um, who can give people a chance to get out of what they know um, and, and see something else. And you know, for me growing up in East New York, you know, it was really like one person. I never thought I was going to college. It was really one woman who ran a program who said, Listen, you, Gonzalez, come here. You're smart enough to go to college. Here's an SAT book. Come in my office on Saturdays and study. And so um, that's what we can do. We can be in it together. These are our family members, right? These, these, these kids and, and, and the folks in our community are people who we live with. And uh, yes, we wanna be safe. And if they're not they're gonna let us be safe, we're gonna hold them accountable, but let's support each other. And uh, if we do that, we'll see crime rates go down like they did before.
1: Thank you so very much for taking the time. And we look forward to our uh, continued conversation and partnership to continue to make Brooklyn safe. Thank right, you. I look
0: forward to coming back, Eljoy. And, uh, you know, I hope next time I'm back, I can tell you not, you know, not only are we back down, um, but that we're making a lot of progress uh, in so many other ways in supporting our, our young people so they can have the kind of lives that they envisioned for themselves.
1: Thank you. Thank you so very much. Well, that's it, folks. I want to thank, the district attorney for Brooklyn, Eric Gonzalez, for joining us for this very insightful conversation. I have a lot of things to think about following that conversation. A few things that I'm thinking about, getting into some good trouble about on how we can challenge both local, state, and federal entities to take a greater role, or at least not stand in the way of trying to reduce the trafficking of illegal guns. For those of you who are listening, who are gun owners, who believe in gun ownership, responsible gun ownership, not talking about you. So please don't get triggered by the conversation. It seems like everybody gets triggered for something, not talking about you. I'm talking about the folks that are trafficking illegal guns that, as the district attorney mentioned, end up in our communities at crime scenes and are causing not by themselves, the guns not by themselves, but the people that have them in their hands are causing violence and death in our communities. And there's some actions that we can take to address some of these issues. So thank you so much for joining me this Sunday morning. Just before we go, I want to give a huge shout out to the folks joining the SiriusXM Urban View Sunday lineup, Shamichael Singleton, Kasim Reed, and Dr. Robin Smith. Oh my God, I'm so looking forward to hearing all of you. So don't turn the radio off. Don't turn Sirius off. This is a great conversations happening on Sunday here on Sirius XM Urban View, actually happening every day. So you never have to turn the radio off. Thanks to all of you for listening. Stay tuned for more great talk, more information, more education that we should use to take action in our communities. Have a great day.